Hi, this is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. Traditional moral accounts of forgiveness tend to prioritize the end of the process. That is, when we think about forgiveness, we favor reconciliation over justice, the abatement of anger over mourning and grief, and the recovery of wholeness over irredeemable loss. Matthew Potts is an Episcopal priest and a professor at Harvard Divinity School. His new book, Forgiveness, an Alternative Account, turns to literary fiction, including novels by Kazuo Ishiguro, Marilyn Robinson, Louise Erdrich, and Toni Morrison as a way of exploring the moral complexities of the subject. He's joined in conversation by our literary editor, Anthony Domestico. That's coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Tony. It's good to have you here. Hi, Dominic. Good to be here. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about your conversation with Matthew Potts? Sure. So we talked about Matthew's new book, Forgiveness and Alternative Account. And I think the most interesting part of the conversation involved him talking about forgiveness as a habit of non-retaliation, thinking about forgiveness as the choice of non-vengeance and how that involves a different relationship to time and a different relationship to morality than more oft-used understandings of forgiveness give. He's also a great reader of literary texts, and I really enjoyed hearing him think about some of those with me. That sounds great, Tony. Why don't we take a listen? Matt, thanks so much for joining us today on the Commonwealth Podcast. Thanks for having me, Tony. I'm really glad to be here. So the complete title of your book is Forgiveness, an Alternative Account. And I thought it would be helpful for listeners for you to describe the traditional account of forgiveness that you're offering an alternative to. So that is to say, can you talk a little bit about how forgiveness is often understood and why you find this conventional understanding wanting? Yeah, that is, that is what the book's up to. And I don't want to split hairs. I don't know if it's a traditional account. I think that's partly what I'm struggling with. Is this a version of forgiveness that has arisen within the last few centuries? I'm not sure that's entirely true, but I think it's partly true. A lot of this comes from just, I'm a pastor as well as a scholar. And and a lot of this comes from sort of pastoral experience of talking to folks who are struggling to forgive or who feel, who experience forgiveness as painful or or as unfair or unjust. And so the two things that I think in particular that collapse into forgiveness that I've found worrisome. The first is that we often mean, I think, conventionally speaking or colloquially speaking, when we say, I forgive you, one of the things we mean is that I'm not angry anymore or I'm no longer angry, right? Or even by extension, like, it's okay now. And the sign that it's okay is that I'm no longer angry. And I think this is, that worries, right? Because that means that victims, uh, their, their moral task is also like a, an exercise of, policing their own emotions or disciplining their own emotions. You know, it's often people who are marginalized or disempowered who are asked to forgive when they've been abused. And I don't like the idea that those folks are also going to be asked to discipline their emotions, right? Like people who have been harmed have a right to be angry. What they do with their anger is a different question. But like to say that you're not even allowed to be angry about what happened, that that worries me. But it also worries me like for sort of like pastoral reasons, a person who has suffered some abuse might not feel anger for a long time, but then might wake up one day very angry, angry because post-traumatic emotions are volatile and unpredictable. And I would hate to tell that person who was forgiven, oh, your forgiveness failed today because today you're angry at the person who harmed you. I really wanted to separate the experience of anger from 
the kind of moral action or moral task or moral demand of forgiveness. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that often forgiveness collapses into reconciliation. So the other thing that we often meet when we say, I forgive you is let's restore relationship or let's, let's get right with each other and, and put back together what's been broken. That troubles me for a couple of reasons. The first is that forgiveness, at least as I read it in the New Testament, in many cases, not in every case, but in many cases seems to be an unconditional demand, just do, or an unconditional command, you forgive because you're meant to forgive. And if forgiveness means reconciliation, reconciliation ought to come with some conditions, right? I ought not to be obliged to reconcile with someone who is a danger to me, right? Who continues to be a threat to me. That's not a condition in which I would reconcile with someone. And then the other kind of theological question is, it is like a spiritual humility to forgiving someone with whom I am not yet able to reconcile. First of all, it, it recognizes the other person might have some moral tests to accomplish before our relationship can be restored. And it also recognizes the limits of my own power and limits my own love. I can love my enemy enough not to harm him in return, but maybe my love is not powerful enough to bring us back together in this world. And I think there's scriptural warrant for this too, that God will reconcile all things to God's self, right? That, not that I will. That we will. I have faith that this can be done, perhaps as a spiritual task, but in the moment and in the present, it might be that my moral task is to prevent further harm or a cycle of retributive violence or something like that. And that is all I can do and maybe all that's demanded of me when I forgive. I think we tend to think about forgiveness. We tend to think about wrongdoing or sin, I think, as based upon a model of debt, like a wrong is a debt that we have to someone else. And that means the debt has to be repaid. And so this implies all things about what punishment does, how punishment repays for the wrong of debt. And I think that actually forgiveness operates with a different metaphorical framework around sin and loss and wrongdoing. And I think it might make sense to move away from that model of debt so we can avoid some theologies of punishment that it carries in tow. Yeah. So one way of thinking about what you're doing in this book then is offering a critique of certain very recent traditions of understanding forgiveness in excavating or recovering other traditions of understanding forgiveness, right? And so one of the ways of conventionally understanding forgiveness within the last, say, 100 years is that it has to do with the expunging of anger. But you're interested in particular in an English theologian from the 18th century, Joseph Butler, right, who doesn't just talk about forgiveness as not just doing away with anger, but actually anger serves and serves a necessary and good function. Would you talk a little bit about how anger isn't just something to be avoided, but is actually a kind of necessary component? Yeah. So this is, this is Bishop Joseph Butler, who I'm not an early modernist. This isn't my area, but I turned to him because he had these sermons on forgiveness. Um, and interestingly, you know, he's writing just after, you know, just after Shakespeare at a time when people are thinking about forgiveness in maybe slightly different ways than we do now, although we're not sure we recognize it when we read those things. He has two sermons that deal with forgiveness. One is called On Resentment. The other one's called On Forgiveness. But even the forgiveness sermon, about half of it deals with resentment. So a lot of both sermons is about resentment. And he really makes the point that like anger is important. It's a necessary affective experience. It's a necessary emotion. Like he says, if we were creatures without anger, we would not know when we were harmed. And if we did not know when we were harmed, we could not protect ourselves and we could not protect others. And protecting ourselves and protecting others is what we're supposed to do, right? And so anger is really important. And he also gives some examples of how, you know, our task is to love our enemy. And anger can be congruent with love. Like you could be angry at people you love, right? The fact that you love them means that maybe you will, your anger will 
bear out as action in different ways, right? But you can feel the experience. You can have the affective experience of anger towards people you love. The question is, what do you do? And so that's what he said. He's like, let's not, try to, let's not try to get rid of anger. Let's think about anger and think about what we do with anger. And what, so what he said is what we need to do, what forgiving looks like, is not abusing our anger. And he has his own kind of standards for what an abusive anger would be. And I think we may or may not share his standards of what a, an abusive anger would be. But I think that the fact that he's raising the question is interesting. The other reason I turned to Butler is because a lot of contemporary thinkers about forgiveness do draw upon Butler. And he's routinely misread as saying, oh, forgiveness is the opposite of anger. It's not quite what he says. He says forgiveness is the opposite of the abuse of anger. But anger is just a human experience and actually an important moral one because any sense of harm we feel is going to be signaled to us by anger. And so if you look at contemporary experiences of forgiveness, so I opened the book with the families of the victims of the Charleston shooting. Some of the families offered forgiveness to Bill and Ruth. And there was lots of commentary in the national media about this, both positive and negative. But what's really interesting is, you know, several of the families, or at least more than one member of the family at different points, at least one of them at the arraignment, others in the interviews afterwards, said, I'm angry. I, I'd like to, anger is part of this experience, right? They, they were not seeing anger as contradictory or as contradicting their forgiveness, but as part of the experience of forgiving. And the reason is because there is harm here. Part of what those families were saying is there is harm here that has not been redressed that still stands. Yeah. As you said, a, another way of understanding forgiveness that you're pushing back against, right, is understanding forgiveness as a kind of accounting, a balancing of the books, a debt that needs to be paid. And you nicely note that etymologically, right, in scripture, forgiveness has certainly has to do with debt, but it also has to do with distance. And can you talk a little bit about how your own understanding of forgiveness, which is not doing away with anger, it's not forgetting, it's a habit of non-retaliation, how the habit of non-retaliation as forgiveness tells us or has to do with space, with establishing a, a distance. Yeah. So, so the word in Greek, in the Greek New Testament, which is often translated as forgiveness, although other words loop into the English word for forgiveness. The Greek word is aphemi. It's translated in Latin as remitere, which literally means to send away, right? And so like the etymological roots of aphemi means to send away a wrongdoing, to send away a sin. Now, this is an ambitious etymology for me because at the time, you know, New Testament scholars would say that was also the language that was used for remitting a debt, right? And so there already was a financial component to that understanding, a metaphorical one. So I'm not trying to make a very strong, like, philological claim here. But I'm interested in that idea of distance as maybe a resource we can use for thinking through wrongdoing, because the idea of wrongdoing as a debt worries me in what it implies about what punishment does in the wake of wrongdoing, right? So if debt, if wrongdoing is a debt, then punishment becomes the way that you repay a debt, right? And then we start to figure, think about, okay, the, how does punishment pay? Like, how do we compensate for the person who has been wrong? What sort of pain or suffering can compensate in terms of repaying a person who has suffered a loss, which is suffering and pain, right? And you get these like, kind of, this is where you get the practices. And these are the things that I think Joseph Butler was defending in his essays, which I depart from him on, like where we defend corporal and capital punishments by governments, which is, well, we need to pay. Like, you, you have, you owe a debt to us, now you need to pay by suffering for us, right? And the thing that worries me there is this idea of payment, that, that what we do with suffering or what we do with wrongdoing is compensate for 
somehow. And the reason is because debts don't work like suffering. If I lose $5, you take $5 from me, like you can pay me back. And we can even do complicated like calculations about like, interest payments to, for lost investment or whatever. And so I can get some interest on my $5, whatever. But if you hurt me gravely or kill someone I love, those things can't be brought back. And there's actually no amount of suffering that can bring them back. And this is a truism. I think people know this. But it also makes me think, what do we do when something has been suffered that can't be restored? Can't itself be brought back or compensated for in any simple, direct way? What we do is we try to figure out how to live without that thing meaningfully and usefully, right? And this is also the way that forgiveness thinks. I mean, the interesting thing about the kind of paradoxical thing about forgiveness is that we think about punishment as undoing a wrong. Like you've paid your debt to society when you've been punished. We use this language, right? But then we also think about forgiveness as undoing it in this magical way. God forgiving you and now it's okay, right? But if you look at people like the Charleston families or other kind of culturally significant moments of forgiveness in especially North American experience, I'm thinking of like the Nickel Lions shooting in the early 2000s where the Amish forgave this person who went to school and murdered several girls, they would say, this is hard, I'm angry, this is not something that fixes it, like we suffer every day. There is not the sense of forgiveness that has magically triumphed over anything. Rather, it's something else. And, and, and so what I want to align forgiveness with is kind of like a practice of lament and mourning. The practice of saying, oh, this thing that has happened to me or to us cannot be undone. Punishment won't undo it. Retaliation won't undo it. Vengeance won't undo it. Even saying it's okay or giving up my anger won't undo it. That doesn't mean there's nothing to do. There are still things to do. We can still try to live meaningfully into the future. We can still try to move forward in the future. And as Christians, to do so without violence, without retaliatory or reciprocal violence, I would, and to me, that's the posture forgiveness takes. It's one which kind of courageously faces a past which cannot be undone in order to build a, free, a future, an honest future, a future on the, on the actual circumstances that we have, which is a broken past. Rather than thinking about forgiveness or even punishment for that matter, this works especially, I mean, I think this kind of framework for thinking about forgiveness works especially with brave wrongs, right? But I also think thinking about forgiveness as this sort of non-retaliatory posture makes it forward-facing, makes it future-facing. It's a posture that one takes towards the past as absolute, as irrevocable, and accepts that irrevocability with lament and mourning, depending upon what that past has been, and then tries to build a new future based honestly upon what that means. And that sometimes can mean, I think, for forgiveness, can mean things like, like reparation or amends or atonement, whatever those things might be. But if there are disciplinary practices imagined as part of that atonement or amends, they're not compensatory, right? They're not like you're giving me back something I've lost or your suffering is paying for my suffering. It's we got to figure out a way to live together in the future. And that's going to take some effort from you and from me and so forth going forward. Yeah, and understanding forgiveness as mourning allows us to see that forgiveness is not, as you argue throughout the book, it's it's not forgetting, it's right memory. It's a certain kind of attitude towards the past that allows us to move hopefully reckoning with loss into the future. We'll have more of Tony's conversation with Matthew Potts in a minute. I'm Ellen Koenig, Executive Director of Commonweal. With our centennial just around the corner in 2024, now is a great time to consider making a one-time donation or joining our associates program. Thank you very much for your support. It helps make everything we do at Commonweal, our publications, our programming, and this podcast 
possible. So in order to offer a better account of forgiveness, you look at four novels, right? You look at literature in order to wrestle with the problem of forgiveness. So you look at Keswick Misha Grove's The Buried Giant, Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, Louise Erdrich's La Rose, and Toni Morrison's Beloved. And I'm wondering why it is you felt in order to wrestle deeply with forgiveness, you needed to wrestle with literary texts. So partly it's I'm a scholar of religion and literature. And so I wanted to think along with literature. But I, I think there is something about there is something about just the disciplinary aims of theology, which are to, to specify and de- define, which maybe work against the messiness of what forgiveness is and what forgiveness aims to Forgiveness is an act, aims to do, right? Good theology is precise and clear and explains in a concise and clear way, or precise and clear way. And I think that's really useful and important. I hope that my book, at times at least, is precise and clear, right? But there's, but there's also something about just even the act of forgiveness, which is acknowledging that which can't be understood, acknowledging that which can't be made sense of, even the sense of wrongdoing, like coming into a, a posture of lament or mourning towards that which can't be undone is one of sort of undecidability. And forgiveness itself is this practice of looking at that which we can't comprehend or can't fix and trying to make some sense of it. That's the experience of mourning, right? Anybody who's, who's mourned knows that, that, that that's what mourning feels like. And literature captures that really well. Good theology does too, right? And so I, it is a character in theology. And I read a lot of good theology in this book along with these novels. And so I'm, that is a character. But I think the reason why I want to look at literature is because that's actually what literature is trying. If you pick up Beloved, Beloved is not trying to define forgiveness for you. Beloved is dropping you in the middle of this complicated matrix of structural violence and individual violence and love and pain and hate and loss and watching folks struggle with it and try to find new life and try to be good and try to do the right thing and fail at many times, but also not have many options, all that stuff, right? And that's what it lays out for you. And I feel like a forgiving reading of forgiveness would have to be one which would kind of be open to and interested in sinking into the complexity of all that. And that's what literature it only, not only does it, it, it's the point of it in many cases, especially the novel form, is to do that, right? And the other novels do that as well in different, in very different settings, right? And so I also find myself just turning to them because if my goal is to, tr- in the book, is to complicate the idea of forgiveness before I try to start to clarify it, then the books are, the, the literary texts are really good at complicating it and helping raise the question, the hard questions. The, one, the confusing ones, which are exactly the ones that I want to, to explore. Yeah, you nicely write at one point, literature is congruent with forgiveness because each exposes a secret it describes but cannot uncover, right? An idea that it can describe but cannot uncover the complexities, the messiness, the secret that really comes to all the chapters, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, and that's also why I think we can see forgiveness as both tragic and hopeful. Right. Like the idea that forgiveness as a practice of mourning. I mean, again, you and I, we, we've mourned people that we loved before. Like it's an awful thing. It's not something we'd like to do, but it is also the way we move forward into the future. Right. It, it, it is forward facing. And it is because I think that kind of mourning does retain some faith that even if the past can't be undone, 
there is still meaning to be had in in a life that can still be lived. I think that's kind of like the posture of forgiveness, which is we have this the kind of the irrevocable fact of the past, and yet also this kind of sense that there is still meaning to be made. We can still live in the light of this and move forward into into some future. Yeah. And it's certainly too complex a novel and too complex an argument for you to distill in 30 seconds for our listeners. But I was wondering if you could just kind of briefly talk about how some of these issues are at play in your reading of LaRose. So maybe tell listeners what the opening act of LaRose is and how that introduces the problem in particular of forgiveness, not as a wiping away of anger, but as a way of dealing with loss. Yeah, well, and this won't be a spoiler, I don't think, although maybe I'll get to some spoilers as I explain why it's important to me. But so warning to your listeners if they haven't like read La Rose, which they ought to. It's a really beautiful novel. So La Rose began, it takes place like a lot of movies or just novels. It takes place in the upper Midwest, North Dakota, Minnesota, within and on the edges of indigenous Ojibwe communities there. And this takes place in the first six pages. What you have are two families. Both have indigenous lineage of different kinds and both have six-year-old boys. One of the fathers is out hunting in the first page of the novel and he sees a buck and he takes a shot. And and through some unexplained kind of accident, he kills his neighbor's son. And it's easy to imagine this is a heroine for six pages of this novel. And what they decide to do, the man who kills his son, he's a faithful Catholic and he also practices some traditional religion, traditional religious practices and indigenous religious practices. And he and his wife decide to follow the quote-unquote old ways, and they give their six-year-old son to their neighbors to raise as their own, right? And the reason why I became immediately interested when I read this is not only because it's really harrowing for six pages, and basically the remaining 300 or so pages of the novel is just all fallout from that, that initial terrible traumatic event, is we have this idea of sacrifice that operates in so much of Christian atonement theology operating there, right? There's been a loss and now one child has to be sacrificed for the other. We have to give the child to the other. And the child who was given, whose name is LaRose, suffers immensely being given to this other family. There's almost like a sleight of hand, I think, from Erdrich in this novel because Erdrich writes a lot about Catholic communities and she kind of gives the sense that this is this compensatory framework. The old way is like, you need to, you've taken something from somebody, you need to pay them back, even if it's a human life. So a life has been taken, you need to give a life to, to, to compensate. And it, and it looks like it's going to say that this is what, this is how justice works. But what happens, at least in my reading of the novel, is something else happens. Nobody is fooled into thinking at any point that anything has been compensated. Even if they thought that's what they were doing at the beginning, and there's some sense that maybe they thought they were paying some compensation, that's not all their experience of it. Everyone suffers immensely. Like anger doesn't go away. People are still full of rage and still all the things, all the mourning and grief happen. But what does happen is that the family who receives their neighbor's child as a replacement fall in love with that child. And so even though they hate their neighbors, they don't exact vengeance on their neighbors because they love the child. As the child becomes the kind of this, this means towards peace, not because he compensates for a loss, but because he provides an avenue whereby love becomes a kind of barrier to violence. Thinking about this Christologically, that really, we can start to really think about, okay, boy, what's going on here? How can we think about the, if we read LaRose as a Christ figure in the first six pages of this novel in this compensatory framework, a son given for a loss, 
for a debt. Then we have to start rethinking what that is. Then this novel becomes really interesting theologically. But then Erdrich is saying like, oh, here's a different theology of atonement that we could be be offering. Yeah, I just want to read to you and, and to our listeners two sentences that crystallize the reading and how it operates within the broader conversation about forgiveness we've been having so far. You say, we don't forswear vengeance because we lack desire for it or even necessarily because we believe our enemy no longer deserves it. We forswear vengeance because someone we love loves our enemy and we can't bear to break that beloved one's heart. It's a beautiful thought in a beautiful book. Thank you for the book and thank you for talking with me today, Matt. Thanks so much, Tony. It was a real pleasure to talk with you. I appreciate it. Matthew Potts' new book is Forgiveness, an Alternative Account, available now from Yale University Press. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.